let's take a trip back in time today, shall we? The day is November 28th, 1973, nearly 50 years ago this month. To raise money for the restoration of the Palace of Versailles, American fashion publicist Eleanor Lambert, who, by the way, founded New York Fashion Week, the Council of Fashion Designers of America, otherwise known as the CFDA, the Met Gala, and the International Best Dress List. So, wow, what a life. And Versailles curator Gerald Vanderkamp created what was called the Battle of Versailles Fashion Show, which pitted five French designers against five American designers in what everyone thought would be an almost 100% assured win for the French. In 1973, American fashion had not become all that it would be. Compared to, say, the French or the Italians, American fashion wasn't even on the map. But then, November 28th, 1973 happened. You'll hear my guest and I, who I will introduce you to in a moment, talk about the 10 designers, specifically the American designers, in just a moment. But I want to continue to set the scene for you at Versailles that night. There were about 700 in attendance, including Princess Grace, Andy Warhol, Liza Minnelli. In the fashion world, this night was the stuff of legends, and it transcended fashion to become a cultural tour de force. For the competition, each designer submitted eight designs. The five French designers considered their win a given. But then here come the five American designers who employed 11 black models, an unprecedented number at the time, and stole the show. It was more than just about winning the Battle of Versailles though. This night changed not just American fashion, but global fashion forever. In today's throwback pick, I have the fantastic Robin Givon with me, whose book, The Battle of Versailles, The Night American Fashion Stumbled into the Spotlight and Made History, which was released in 2015. Robin is a fashion editor, a fashion critic at the Washington Post, and is a Pulitzer Prize winner, having won the Pulitzer Prize for Criticism in 2006, the first time that award was given to a fashion writer. The Battle of Versailles was the perfect subject matter for Robin's style, as she writes not just about fashion, but how it translates to culture. To say Robin is an expert and a legend in this space would probably be underselling her. She is the creme de la creme, and just like Jean Godfrey June is for beauty in the episode prior, there's no journalist I can think of that I respect more in the fashion space than Robin which is why I got very nervous, not only pronouncing the names of the designers, but also Robin's own name at one point while she was in front of me. It was one of those situations where you know how to say everything in your head, but it just doesn't always come out of your mouth that way. And God bless you, Robin, for being so kind about it in that moment. Once again, an example of when your heroes end up being all you hoped they'd be. Thank goodness I don't get nervous or starstruck anymore, but whenever I do, I'm so glad it's always captured on tape, right? Anyway, I digress. In addition to the Washington Post, Robin has also been the fashion critic and fashion correspondent at the Daily Beast and Newsweek. She's also written for Vogue and the Detroit Free Press. We get some insider scoop towards the end of the episode about her new book, which will be immediately purchased and read by me upon its release. I just want to say thank you to journalists like Robin for inspiring me to get into the profession and even once reaching the absolute pinnacle of success, always making time for other journalists as they aspire to walk in her footsteps. I know you will enjoy this conversation just as much as I did. Robin, thank you so much for being here today. Welcome to the show. It's my pleasure to be here. 
you are one of the foremost experts on fashion in the U.S. and globally. You could have written a book about anything and certainly a book about anything within the fashion stratosphere. So why write about this and how did the idea come across your desk? I know it's a very, very well-known moment from the 1970s, but why this and how did you become aware of it? Well, I've been covering the industry for a while and to be perfectly honest, I really didn't know that much about uh, the Versailles show, Uh but I've heard it mentioned um, periodically, just sort of in passing. And um, so it intrigued me to some degree. And then um, I think, gosh, it must've been around 2000, I don't know, 10 or 11 or something like that. Uh, the Met Museum had uh, a luncheon celebrating the models of Versailles. Mm-hmm. And uh, I went to that and it was really interesting because Oscar de la Renta was there and Stephen Burroughs, uh, the models, uh, most of the models were there along with Donna Karen. And uh, that was the first time that I really heard people who were there Mm-hmm. actually talking about it in a detailed and a, a really personal way. But still, I didn't really think about a book until I got a complete cold call uh, from a literary agent who wondered if I'd have a copy. And he said he thought that uh, there was a book in in this show. Mm-hmm. And um you know, I just sort of said, well, you know, I'm not really interested in the fashion show itself. I'm more intrigued by sort of how it came to be and sort of the social and cultural shifts that were happening around that time. Mm -hmm. And he said, perfect. That's, that's exactly, I think what I think this book should be. Yeah. And that's kind of how it happened. Well, the book centers around, and please forgive my butchering French pronunciation here, the Grand Divertissement, did I say that correctly, uh, Versailles, which took place on November 28th, 1973, listeners at, as one might surmise, the Palace of Versailles in Paris. So in the book's introduction, you write, by the time the spotlight dimmed and the curtain came down on the evening spectacle, fashion history had been made and an industry had been forever transformed. So for those who haven't yet read your book or who may not be familiar with the Battle of Versailles, how so? How is how is the industry and fashion history transformed? Well, I would say that, um, you know, the, the biggest change was in some ways kind of existential. Right. <laughs> Because up until that point, really, the uh, French fashion industry was the center of everything. Mm-hmm. And you know, obviously, even now, you know, Paris shows tend to be by far the most international shows mm-hmm. of, of all of the, the the runway weeks. But at that time, it wasn't just that Paris was, um, you know, the sort of center of couture. Um, it really was the center of everything. I mean, mm-hmm. the designers were overwhelmingly French and they really set the tone. And, you know, designers in New York, really, they just, they copied what the French were doing. Mm-hmm. And they did that for uh, the department stores. 
And if you, you know, bought a dress from say a Bergdorf Goodman, mm -hmm. the label inside the dress said Bergdorf Goodman. It mm -hmm. didn't say Oscar de la Renta. Mm, it was okay. only, um, you know, later um, that um, the name of the American designer would appear in the garment. And, you know, the American buyers would go to Paris and they would pay a fee in order to be able to essentially copy the collections that they right. saw on the runway. Right. And so, you know, for American designers, there was definitely this feeling that their sense of creativity was less than their French counterparts. And there was a sense that the American industry was, you know, absolutely secondary, if not tertiary, you know, to the Italian industry. Hmm. This really allowed the American industry to see itself as able to compete and to recognize that the ready-to-wear that the American industry was really focused on in all of its more sort of pragmatic, um, sort of uh, streamlined aesthetic was just as viable and if not more so to a generation of women who didn't have the time or the inclination to go to umpteen fittings and then wait for a couture garment to arrive. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So this all originated, the idea germinated as a fundraiser for Versailles, is that correct? Yeah, it was a fundraiser to repair, um, to make repairs on Versailles, which was in sort of terrible condition. Right. And so we have the Battle of Versailles pitting five American designers, which we're going to unpack those five in just a second, against mm -hmm. five French designers. Yves Saint Laurent, Pierre Cardin. Um, I, I'm pronouncing these in front of Robin Given. So like, I'm so, I'm so nervous. Givenchy, Emmanuel Ungaro, and Mark Bohan. So I want to, I want, you kind of already, you touched on You're this. You're doing so, great. You're thank doing you. Great. That was hard. <laughs> I was like, okay. Cause I know how to say these in like my own vernacular, but I'm like, I'm talking to the expert here. So, oh my gosh, but I'm glad I passed the test. So, Look, so I, it, here, I will tell you a funny story about yeah, yeah, yeah. French and pronunciations. Mm -hmm. I, I, mean, I studied French and in a pinch, I could certainly sort of, you know, talk my way out of like catastrophe <laughs> if I were in Paris. Mm -hmm. I have pretty good sort of shopping and restaurant French. Uh, but I'm certainly not uh, fluent. And I had managed to locate Marc Bohan, who was living uh, in the countryside in France. Mm -hmm. He was the designer for Christian Dior at okay. the time. Okay. And in fact, he was the longest serving designer at Dior. And I wanted to ask him about, um, you know, Versailles and, I, and about sort of his customers so I call him up out of the blue. Mm -hmm. And when I tell you that this poor gentleman was so polite to this insane American who was just <laughs> assaulting him with horrible French, <laughs> and he was so confused. Oh my gosh. I, I basically just, you know, said, I, I'm, I'm so sorry. You know, I'll, I, I'll call you back. And I located um, someone who was willing to do the interview for me in French. Uh -huh. uh, I provided the questions and she called him back and I said, and the first thing that you have to do is you must apologize for the bonkers American who was <laughs> mutilated 
his mother tongue. Uh, oh my gosh. Well, I mean, I love fashion, right? But I'm not you. I'm no expert as you are. And I, that makes me laugh because I've spent a significant portion of this summer in New Orleans, which has a lot of French and obviously French inspired names and streets. And I just, the whole thing, the whole time I was just apologizing. Like, I just, I'm sorry. Like, I'm, I'm not trying to butcher this, but anyway, I, all, all of those five French designers that I just named and probably butchered a little bit, but um, so, and then we'll talk about the five American designers in a minute but before we do in 1973 what was the relationship between French and American fashion and you already kind of explained that the French were seen as light years ahead of American fashion I know you write in the book that the French rhapsodized over the past the Americans thrilled to the future so what did the French just see Americans as just totally secondary to to their to their fashion um, yeah, I mean, I think that's even a bit generous. I mean, I think the French just <laughs> sort of didn't think that the Americans really mattered all that much. Uh-huh, uh-huh. Um, you know, the sort of the influencers of the day, which were, you know, these sort of high society women, um, you know, turned to the French designers for their wardrobes. And there really was a much more um, direct kind of trickle down effect uh-huh. where you had the couture worn by these influencers um, uh, having an an impact on what the American designers created and what then sort of regular American women purchased. Mm -hmm. So it it was really about sort of setting the trends um, and the French set the trends and everyone else really followed. But, you know, there was this, um, it, it was a point at which change was happening. I mean, there were a lot of things going on culturally, mm-hmm. more going into the workplace, you know, it's just like one of them. And ready to wear was something that even the French designers were dabbling in. Uh, Saint Laurent certainly was one of them who was moving into ready to wear, but couture was really sort of the essence of fashion mm-hmm. and the Americans d- didn't do couture they they did ready to wear and that's why you know I felt like they were the ones who were really leaning towards the future and the French were very much celebrating um the history and um the legacy mm-hmm. of French fashion in, mm-hmm. in all that they did mm-hmm. The, the fact that this even came together, this idea in the first place is just totally fascinating. But on the, if you will, American side, we have five American designers who presented that night at the Battle of Versailles. We've got Bill Blast and Klein, who also very interestingly to me, brought along Donna Karen, who was her assistant at the time, Oscar de la Renta, Halston, and Stephen Burroughs. So these designers are all American. Other than that, did their work work together as a cohesive unit basically why these five why these five designers well it was ultimately because uh they agreed to go right <laughs> but that's also... a, like I don't think we're we're underselling listeners like how like much of an underdog situation this is you know <laughs> I mean, others, um, there was a bit of back and forth about which American designers were going to go and who was asked and who was asked first or not. Uh, So even even then, uh, egos came into play. 
Um, but they're also all represented by the organizer of the, the Versailles show, which was Eleanor Lambert. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, you know, Oscar de la Renta and Bill Blas were kind of, um, you know, the guys of, of American fashion at that point, um, along with, you know, like Jeffrey Bean and, and Galanos, who's on the West Coast. Um, but Oscar and, and, and Bill Blass were definitely um, uh, sort of in their, in their heyday. Right. Um, and, uh, you know, Eleanor wanted uh, a woman to be represented uh, and Anne Klein was probably the most financially successful of mm-hmm. uh, the American designers at that point. She really did cater to um, uh, women who were moving outside of the home, working women, professional women. Um, and then, you know, Halston had begun to establish himself as sort of the precursor of the idea of the sort of celebrity designer. Right. And, you know, he was great friends with Liza Minnelli. He had just sold his company to Norton Simon. They'd made an enormous investment in it. Um, So he was the one who was sort of flush with cash. Uh, And then there was Stephen Burroughs, who was uh, the only uh, designer of color, Mm African-American, youngest by far, uh, I think a good... 10 years, if not more, younger than Bill Blass, for instance. Mm -hmm. And he was, you know, I I don't think people really sort of grasp just how sort of young and hip and uh, compelling Stephen Burroughs was at that time. I mean, he was kind of like a Mark Jacobs, Anna Sui all rolled into one package. Mm-hmm. I mean, mm-hmm. he was someone who hung out on Fire Island. He was friends with Halston. He had this sort of posse of pals that he'd known since design school who worked with him. He was the darling of Henry Bendel, um, which was, you know, this very fashion forward um New York boutique kind of department store and he just won a big fashion award so he was quite he was very cool Mm -hmm. cool factor yeah and you know what I love about this book and why I've read it three or four times is since it came out in 2015 is the book makes you feel like you're there you're right there in the thick of the action and of that night the book says you've never seen anything more beautiful in your life and you also write that each of these designers came to Versailles with a story to tell. So I'm, I've, I'm, every time I read this book, I'm thinking, how did these five get along as a unit? Cause they're, di- I mean, obviously they're five different people with five different aesthetics and stories to tell. So how did they get along as, as the five of them, or was it just really more siloed? Um, I mean, you know, to some degree it was, it was siloed because each one was presenting their collections separately. Mm -hmm. It was a group show, but each one had sort of their uh, few moments, you know, on, on stage. But that said, um, you know, they all used the same group of models, um, Mm -hmm. except for Halston, who had um, brought some celebrities with him. Um, you know, but they'd had to essentially agree 
that um, they would use the same group of models in order to keep costs down. Um, they were working with what was really like a single soundtrack on tape. Mm -hmm. And, you know, this was again, like 1973. And so, you know, this was way before any sort of like digital streaming kind of thing. And so the, I talked to the sound engineer who was telling me that the music was essentially on one continuous tape. Wow. And the silences between each segment were also on that tape. And so if one designer's collection ran too long or not long enough, oh, or wow, the changes yeah. weren't happening quickly enough, everything could get out of sync. Oh, wow, yeah. So there definitely had to be cooperation, but, you know, designers are designers. Right. And so there was also competition and egos. And, you know, Halston by far had um, probably the largest ego of the group. Um, but in his defense, I would say he also, you know, to some degree had um, the most to lose because he had just entered this incredibly high profile time in his career. Mm -hmm. um, you know, when I was interviewing uh, the surviving designers, Oscar de la Renta was the first that I interviewed. And as a journalist, you're always a little bit worried that, um, you know, if someone says one thing about someone that then you have to sort of, you know, you go and you check that and you have to get confirmation. And I worried that um, as these stories came out that, you know, designers were going to be hesitant to put themselves in a bad light. Mm -hmm. um, but when I sat down with Oscar, he was so charming and he was so funny because he basically just sort of leaned in and he said, okay, look, let me tell you what I did. And then he completely <laughs> started dishing on himself. I love that. And what a dream <laughs> interview, my God, a just absolute dream. And there was a big to do about who was going to go first and who was going to go. Right. Last. That's what I'm saying. Like, how do you yeah. say, okay, who's going to close? Who's going to open? Like, cause you know, I mean, designers are designers and I mean, and humans are humans. We have egos, you know? Absolutely. So there, there was definitely that. And there was a lot of sort of gamesmanship in terms of who was going to do what. And Oscar told me this story about how um, Halston, in order to sort of zhuzh up his portion of the show, had invited Liza Minnelli mm -hmm. to come and be part of his presentation. And they were big friends and Liza had just, you know, come off of, I think it was Cabaret at the time. So she was quite the big star. And um, so Oscar was really infuriated that this was happening. And so he called up his friend Raquel Welch and asked <laughs> if she would come and be in his portion of the show. And then Liza got upset that Raquel was coming because she thought, oh, great, like Ra Raquel Welch was considered this great bombshell beauty. Right. going to be in the show and it was going to, you know, upstage her and then back and forth it went until they finally agreed that, okay, there would be no Raquel, there would just be Liza and she would be the sort of celebrity who tied everything together and she mm -hmm. wouldn't 
just perform for Halston. She would perform for the entire American group. That's like the battle within the battle. of (laughs) (laughs) I've got to touch on the models. So you, you alluded to this a moment ago, the American designers used 11 black models at the time. That was totally unprecedented. Um, Spoiler alert, listeners, the American designers and the models stole the show. I think you've probably picked up on that listeners. If you don't know about the battle of Versailles, just from reading about it in other outlets or reading Robin's book. So what was the landscape for a black model like at the time in 1973? Well, there were um, a good number of working uh, Black models at the time. And, um, you know, some designers uh, in New York certainly used Black models. I mean, there were Black designers working Mm -hmm. uh, in New York. And um, one of my favorite anecdotes from the book was um, the story of how Bergdorf Goodman hosted uh, this fashion show and parties celebrating the black designers uh, whose whose collections they sold, which I found fascinating because I just thought, wow, there were that many black designers whose work was sold at Bergdorf Goodman. Who knew? Mm-hmm. Um, so they were definitely in the mix, but um, you know they often were paid less than their white counterparts. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it was still quite challenging for them to um, be accepted in, you know, in all circumstances. And so one of the reasons why there were so many of them at Versailles uh, was in part because, um, you know, the American designers uh, were you know, did not have vast resources. Mm-hmm. And so they were, um, their salaries, their cost was less than uh, their white counterparts. Mm-hmm. Um, for some of them, like um, uh, Pat Cleveland and Beth Ann Hardison, um, they were working very closely with Stephen Burroughs. Mm-hmm. And so that's why they were definitely included. And because the designers were sharing models, at least three designers would have had to sign off and say, okay, I will use that model. Um, And then there were others um, that I really didn't know very much about, like Billy Blair. Mm -hmm. Um, And when I started reporting, I thought that, um, you know, if I focused on any one or two models, it might be sort of Pat Cleveland or Beth Ann Hardison. But after I started interviewing designers and other people who were there, Billy Blair's name just kept coming up and up and up. And, you know, Oscar de la Renta, you know, practically swooned over how incredible she was. Um, a close confidant of Bill Blass talked about how he was just completely blown away by mm-hmm. how incredible she was on the runway. And so, you know, there were models like that who, you know, didn't go on to become household names, but who were really quite um, charismatic on the runway. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I actually, you know what I need to do this weekend is watch that documentary. There's a documentary and I don't remember what platform it's on right now. Maybe, you know, but I'll figure it out. There's a documentary about it. And now I want to, I want to see it because, you know, reading about it is so compelling. I want to see it come to life, but the battle of Versailles was the moment that American fashion elevated 
on a global scale. It, it's a it's a big deal. And I want to read some from you. So you write, and now on this stage, American designers had conquered Paris. It was as if on this cold night, all the windows of Versailles had been blown open. Eleanor Lambert cried. You mentioned her earlier in the episode. And then later you write, on that one snowy night of Versailles, the Americans shone brightly on stage, some as brilliantly as they ever would. Black models were a triumph, a thunderclap of glory. The tale unfolded in France, but the story is wholly American, a culmination of social shifts, racial conflict, politics, ambition, idealism, and magic. And then you also write, the success of Versailles gave the American designers a jolt of confidence, but it had an even broader impact. Fashion became a flashy, exuberant, open party that seemed to welcome everyone. That openness was an enormous shift from the past in which fashion was a private club for society's elite. After Versailles, fashion broke free of the ateliers, its cherished cathedrals, and entered the public square. I love all of those passages and how you sum it up, but what is that night's lasting legacy? I think it's, it's, um, you know, sort of a multi-layered effect. I mean, Mm -hmm. I think um, sort of writ large, it really changed the way that American designers thought about themselves on the world stage. It confirmed to them that, that they belonged there and that there was a place for them there and that there was an audience uh, globally that res- both respected and appreciated what they were doing. Mm-hmm. And that, you know, obviously is not just sort of good for the psyche, but that's also, you know, it tells you about like where you can take your business right. and what that means for the industry itself. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it was a moment when, you know, women, the models really brought the clothes to life. And there was this recognition of just how important and um, vital they could be to sort of the, the lifeblood of fashion. You know, one of, we talk a lot sort of in retail, people talk about hanger appeal. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the clothes that the Americans, particularly Halston and Stephen Burroughs put on the runway, didn't have a lot of hanger appeal. I mean, Stephen mm-hmm. Burroughs' dresses were made of this really sort of soft jersey. Mm-hmm. And, you know, you put them on a hanger and they just sort of start drooping. Mm-hmm. So they really need a woman to kind of breathe life into them. Mm-hmm. And that's what those models did. Um, I, you know, I wished that I could have ended the book by saying that, you know, the designers who participated, the American designers who participated went on and had these extraordinary careers and that their brands like outlived them. But the reality is that, you know, for a lot of them, the success was really kind of fleeting. I mean, it they didn't feel the incredible impact of Versailles. I I think it was really felt by the generations that followed. That's so interesting because actually you just, you just said my next question is, you know, you have this mountaintop moment and then you have to come home and then, you know, how, like what happens next? So I think that's beautiful how you, I, I would like for you to unpack that a little bit for me, how maybe they didn't feel it, but generations after them felt it. Yeah, I mean, Stephen Burroughs came back and I remember saying to him, so 
you know, did you talk about what had happened at Versailles? I mean, he said that the, the thing that was so moving to him was to have Yves Saint Laurent come up to him and tell him how much he admired his work. Can you even the imagine? Tell, wow, that's an out moment in and of itself. Wow. Right? And he was so just thrilled by that. Yeah. And I asked him if he came back and if he talked about that, you know, if you told like his mother and he said, no, she really wouldn't have, you know, like understood sort of what it meant. And so they didn't talk about it. I mean, Halston probably, you know, sold it the best and kind of made himself the star of it all. Uh Um, But when you look at those businesses, you know, it's really only Oscar de la Renta's that survives and thrives. Yeah, that's, I thought Um, the same thing. Yep. Yeah, I mean, the others, you know, Stephen is is pretty much retired and the others sort of had a bit of a tail, but then they sort of petered out. Mm-hmm. And, but then you look at the next generation after that and you look at people like, you know, Michael Kors, for instance, or even like Ralph Lauren and the Calvin Kleins, mm-hmm. they didn't have this sense of, I need to prove myself in Europe. Right, right. Exactly. They created quintessentially American brands and they allowed and they built their business on an American sensibility and mm-hmm. made the world want that sensibility. Mm-hmm. Well, as we begin to close our time together, I, I can't imagine all the research that goes into a book of this magnitude. What is the most interesting piece of research that you gleaned from writing this? Well, for me, I was always interested in sort of what was going on socially, politically, um, as fashion was happening, because I always feel like, you know, fashion doesn't happen in a vacuum. And Mm -hmm. even if designers aren't directly referring to something, the things that are happening around them, just, you know, they, they kind of, it seeps into their sensibility and it has an impact on the way that they're thinking. And so I was intrigued by the way that things like the riots that happened in a lot of American cities in like the late 1960s mm-hmm. had an impact because uh, you know reports were written trying to figure out why these uprisings happened. And a lot of those report that re- a lot of the reports said that it was really because of a lack of inclusivity mm. and a lack of racial equality. And the report said that in order to prevent something like that from happening again, that there needed to be greater inclusivity in all parts of American culture. Mm-hmm. And it mentioned the arts, it mentioned television, it mentioned advertising. And I think that was happening while these models were being chosen, for instance. And in Paris, there was a similar kind of uprising, but it was one that really involved young people and sexual freedom. And those were the things that were pushing the French side to move more towards um, ready to wear, which was this relaxed, modern, youth-oriented sensibility. 
So for me, that it wasn't so much a surprise as I would say the most gratifying part of the research was just seeing the ways in which cultural change is really reflected mm-hmm. in the in, in fashion mm-hmm. and really reflected in how we think about beauty and um, how women's roles change. Yeah. Well, my last question for you. So this book came out in 2015. I'm clamoring for another book from you. Can you tell us anything about maybe another book project that might be going on? Um, I am working on a book that is um, using the career trajectory of Virgil Abloh. Oh, wow. Cool. Isaac Louis Vuitton to look at the way that the fashion industry has shifted Mm -hmm. over the years and the way that he changed fashion. Any timeline on that? Because that is a book I'm going to (laughs) read. Thank you so much. Um, Well, hopefully uh, my due date (laughs) is is in February. So I don't have a publication date yet, but we're looking at 2024. Well, I'll be there for it. And we maybe have you back on the show for that because that is a book that I will tear up. And I want to close by say, by reading a passage from the book. I think this is the actually the very end of the book. Of that night, you write, Versailles did not change the dominant standard of beauty, but it proved that veering away from the accepted and the expected can produce winning results. So every time the fashion runway makes a place for a plus size woman, an eccentric tomboy, an awkward aristocrat, or four dozen sorority girls, it is a nod to Versailles. That was a moment when the individual trumped the group, when five Americans triumphed, not because of the cut of the clothes or any extraordinary embellishments, but because of the spirit in which they were worn. American individualism showed its best face, and we inched forward. Every now and then, that happens again, and we rejoice. Listeners, the book is The Battle of Versailles, the night American fashion stumbled into the spotlight and made history. Of course, it is out now. Robin, thank you so much for being here and for this conversation. I love this book and I can't, I almost can't wait for my next read of it, even though I just finished it. So thank you for being here. (laughs) Thank you so much for having me. Another mountaintop moment for me right here on I'd Rather Be Reading. Robin, thank you so much for being here. I already anticipate my next read of The Battle of Versailles, the night American fashion stumbled into the spotlight and made history, which listeners is obviously out right now and worth an addition to your library. If you are interested in this cultural moment, there have been a few documentaries of it made, including Versailles 73, American Runway Revolution, a 2012 film by Deborah Riley Draper. In it, you will find Stephen Burroughs, as well as many of the models who were there. In 2016, another documentary came out called Battle of Versailles, which was narrated by none other than Stanley Tucci. If you've seen the miniseries Halston on Netflix, there is a fictionalized version of the Battle of Versailles in that show as well. Check them all out. We've had two throwback picks in a row and more to come in season eight, but next up is a harrowing conversation with the survivor of serial killer Ted Bundy, who bravely shares her story and why it is important to her to honor the victims who weren't able to live the lives they were meant to before they were viciously stolen from them. It is an incredibly powerful conversation. 
and it will be in your podcast feeds this week. Talk then.